Hello and welcome to the Grace Place NYC. We are a church in the neighborhood of Hamilton Heights in Harlem. Our purpose is to live for Christ, love the lost, and transform our culture. Good morning, TGP NYC family. Whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube this morning, we want to welcome you to church. I hope you came ready to receive. I hope you have your your Bible on hand. I hope you have a notebook to take notes. And most of all, I hope you have an open heart to receive what the Holy Spirit wants to deposit in you this morning. Well, if I were to ask you the question, what is the gospel? Most of you would probably say that it is a message for people who don't know Christ to introduce them to Christ and to introduce them to what he did for them on the cross. Although the gospel is good news for unbelievers, it's also great news for believers. Tim Keller talking about the gospel says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. In the church traditions that I have been a part of, I have been taught that the gospel is what saves sinners, and then Christians mature and grow by living by biblical principles. Tim Keller goes on to say, it is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. What I've learned is that the gospel affects every single area of our lives. The gospel affects our sexuality. The gospel affects our marriage. The gospel affects our relationships. The gospel affects our money. The gospel affects our family. The gospel affects everything. When we only try to live out biblical principles without viewing them through the lens of the gospel, it can lead to legalism or works righteousness or actions without the power. Okay? For example, the Bible tells us not uh, the Bible tells us to not hate our brother or sister, but we can refrain uh, refrain, refrain, what is that? Refrain from hating them without truly loving them. Did you hear that? The Bible says that we are to not hate our brother and sister, but we can refrain from hating them without ever truly loving them. You cannot hate someone simply by ignoring them or putting up with them, but a transformed heart through the gospel will move us into truly loving them as Christ loved us. That's a huge difference, right? Not hating someone versus loving them with the love of God is completely different and makes a completely different impact on someone's life. God doesn't just want us to follow the rules, okay? He wants us to follow the rules with a transformed heart, and a transformed heart will always go beyond the rule, okay? Because I love my children, I go beyond just providing a roof over their shoulders, providing food for them and clothes for them. I go beyond that, above and beyond that. Why? Because I love them with all of my heart. Uh, theologian and scholar Dallas Willard put it like this, when I go to New York City, I do not have to think about not going to London or Atlanta. People do not meet me at the airport or station and exclaim over what a great thing I did in not going somewhere else. I took the steps to go to New York City, and that took care of everything. 
Likewise, when I treasure those around me and see them as God's creatures designed for his eternal purposes, I do not make an additional point of not hating them or calling them twerps or fools. Not doing those things is simply a part of the package. That, that, is, that is so important right there. That's why Paul tells us in Romans uh, 13, 8, that he who loves has fulfilled the law. Because if you truly love the way Christ loved us, then you will fulfill all the parts of the law. Willard goes on to say, on the other hand, not going to London or Atlanta is a poor plan for going to New York. And not being wrongly angry and so on is a poor plan for treating people with love. It will not work. In the same way, when I talk about being gospel-centered generous, which is, that's what the title of my message is today. Um, when I say gospel-centered generous, what I'm not saying is don't be stingy or don't be greedy. That, that's not what I'm saying. If we pursue proper generosity from the heart, it will automatically take care of the greed and stinginess in our lives, okay? Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word believes there that Paul uses in the Greek is present tense, meaning ongoing, continuous action. Paul doesn't say here that the gospel is the power of God for conversion. No, he says it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes and keeps on believing and continues to believe. That's what the gospel is. It's, 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 what you, it's not only what you believe before conversion, it's what you believe once you've been converted to Christ. It's easy to accept and believe that our good works before salvation can't save us, right? We all believe that. But it's much harder to believe that our good works after salvation can't save us either. The works that we do can't ever save us, but they are a reflection of a gospel-transformed heart. This becomes a little tricky because good works are very important because they are evidence of a changed heart, but they are not the source of a changed heart. The source of a changed heart is the spirit that indwells us when we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus at the moment of salvation. As we're moving towards Thanksgiving season, I want us to put our attention and our hearts on becoming a more generous people. If you were to measure your generosity in life, not just by how much money you give, but in, but in how you spend your time, whether you give uh, people the benefit of the doubt, and of course, giving to God and others, if you were to measure that like a gas tank, would that would your generosity tank be at F, full, E, empty, or somewhere in between? When, we're, when, when our gas tank in our vehicle, I know a lot of you don't have cars, uh, maybe some of you used to and some of you do that are watching. When your tank is on empty, what do you do? You, you go to the nearest gas station to fill up your gas tank, right? Uh, some of us need to go to the generosity station and fill up our generosity tanks because we're running on empty. And, and depending on what kind of driver you are, I'm the kind of driver that I wait until the light goes on. And there's many times where I'm like, uh, this vehicle can stall at any moment because I get lazy and I, I wait till the last possible second to fill up my tank. Um, some of you guys are, are running on fumes when it comes to generosity right now. 
and, and you're not exuding the heart of God when it comes to giving. And so if and so my my advice to you is that you need to go to that generosity tank and get filled up. Polarization is an enemy to gospel-centered generosity. Our nation polarizes everything. Have you noticed? Uh, we create opposing groups and narratives for everything. And as we are uh, just two days away from the election, man, polarization is at an all-time high right now in our country. Uh, it, it, you know, we, we create those groups and factions and, and tribes for everything in our culture. For example, if you wear a mask, you are living in fear and hate our country. And if you don't wear a mask, you want to kill everyone with the coronavirus. Those are the only two camps that you can be in in America. Uh, if you believe there needs to be police reform, you hate all cops and want anarchy. Or if you honor cops, you hate all minorities and are racist. Those are the only two groups that we can be in. This is what Christians are doing in this election as well, right? If you vote for Trump, some people will say that you're a racist bigot. And if you vote for Biden, you are anti-God and cannot possibly be Christian. We do this, uh, I mean, we do this in church all the time, don't we? If you don't believe what I believe in secondary or third level doctrinal issues, then we can't work together. Then we can't build God's kingdom uh, uh, because of some something, because you, you read a version of the Bible uh, outside of the King James Version, so I can't work with you. Or, or you, you sing... You sing contemporary Christian songs and all you can sing are hymns. And so we can't work together. Secondary issues that, that have nothing to do with the gospel and we divide over. We do this with sports as well, right? You either have to think LeBron James is the goat of basketball or he absolutely stinks at basketball. God forbid you would think he's a great player, but not the best of all time, right? We, we just love to just push people into camps and, and, and polarize people into camps. And when we form these, you're either for me or against me, camps and divide. The narrative is, and the narrative becomes, that, that I can't be generous to someone who disagrees with me because if they disagree with me, they must be evil. That's what polarization does, folks. And how could you ever be generous to someone who you think is an evil monster. You can't. And so polarization is a great enemy and opposition to generosity. But the gospel flies in the face of this ideology and crushes its validity. With polarization, there's no room for generosity. But as you believe the gospel deeper and deeper, generosity is a natural overflow. Let's look at today's text. It's one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 and verse 9. Paul speaking here, or writing here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I love this verse. It's a powerful, powerful uh, verse about the gospel. Paul here was encouraging and challenging the well-off Corinthian believers to contribute financially to a collection that he was... Well, Siri is having trouble hearing me here. I don't know why here. Uh, so let's get back to the message. Siri, I'm preaching here. Um, 
Paul here was encouraging and challenging the Corinthian believers uh, to contribute financially to a collection he was taking up for the saints in Jerusalem who were going through a very, very difficult financial time. They were going through a Great Depression. They were going through a recession. They were going through a housing crisis. They were going through all of it. And so Paul was taking up a collection for them, and he was encouraging the Corinthian believers to give towards it. What's interesting is that Paul had let the Corinthian believers know about this need about a year ago, and they started putting monies away towards the offering, but somewhere along the way, they had stopped contributing to this collection. And so Paul was reminding them of this collection and that he was coming soon or he was sending someone to, to, to pick it up soon. And so they needed to start, uh, they needed to start uh, uh, contributing again. Some commentators think they stopped the collection process because there were false teachers that were telling the Corinthian believers that Paul is having you uh, uh, contribute all of this money and collect all this money. He's going to take it. He's telling you it's for the Jerusalem believer, but he's going to keep it for himself. So that's what some commentators believe was happening. But Paul, with all of this happening in the backdrop, right, instead of appealing to guilt, like if you don't give, the believers in Jerusalem are going to starve to death, like those commercials we see about giving to Africa, and they put up videos of, of, of children that, that, that you can tell they, they are starving, and, and they're on the brink of death, and they're trying, to, they're trying to grab your emotions. They're trying to make you feel guilty of what you have and, 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 and in hopes of having you give to them. Paul, in, instead of appealing to guilt like this, he instead points them to the gospel. He points them to Jesus. He points them to the example of Christ. He's not using guilt or manipulation, but the gospel to show them what a transformed heart looks like. Most of the time, if it's not strictly about a sinner needing salvation, we forget about the gospel and function out of pure self-will to do things. But Paul doesn't do that. He preaches the gospel to them in order to appeal to their hearts about generosity. So, what does the gospel teach me about generosity? Well, number one, though I'm undeserving of God's love, through Christ I have generously received it. If you have a relationship with Jesus today, it's only because of his generosity and grace that you are saved. One of the biggest barriers to us being generous is this overarching view that people don't deserve our generosity. Um, how many of us, including myself, I've done this, have ever walked by a homeless person holding up a sign and in our minds, we say something like, this person doesn't deserve my money because it's probably personal irresponsibility that brought him to this situation in the first place. So. They're not getting any of my hard-earned money. How many of us have ever said that before walking by a homeless person? Well, if you're a Christian, it's not your hard-earned money. It's God's money, right? And we are just stewards and managers of that money. How many of us have ever said, I'm not giving to the church because all they want is my money. All they ever ask for, all they ever talk about is my money, so I'm not giving my money to the church. How many of you have ever withheld certain gifts or talents from the church because you didn't want anybody to find out about it because you didn't want anybody to ask you to do that thing? 
All of these are examples of us believing that others don't deserve, for one reason or another, our generosity. The homeless person doesn't deserve our generosity because they will be irresponsible with my money. The church doesn't deserve my generosity because pastors are greedy. And the people I can minister to with my gifts don't deserve my generosity because I might feel used in the process. But what does Paul say in this verse? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. As Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to give in chapters 8 and 9 in this letter, he uses that word grace 10 times. This word grace or uh, charis in the Greek is referring to God's unmerited, undeserved favor and love for us in Christ. It means showing kindness to someone, having favor on someone, but it's unearned and unmerited and undeserving. Paul is saying, you know the grace of Jesus. That word know is the Greek word gnosko and it. It, it here is referring to an intimate, personal knowledge as well as an intellectual understanding. The key to generosity is to know His grace both intellectually and intimately and allow that intimate knowledge to penetrate the depths of your soul. The gospel humbles every single one of us because none of us deserve the grace of God that has been poured out on our lives through Jesus Christ. None of us, not one of us deserve that unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor that God through Christ poured out into our lives. Not one of us. It doesn't matter how rich you are, or how poor you are. It doesn't matter uh, what kind of family pedigree you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what college you attended. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. None of us deserve the grace that has been poured out in our lives through Jesus. None of us. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, His unmerited, unearned favor, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The gospel calls us to generosity in the sense that if you and I truly got what we deserve, we would never have had the opportunity to be saved and have a relationship with Christ. None of us. Only by receiving what we did nothing to earn have we been reconciled to God and received the spiritual blessings of salvation and sonship and all that comes with it. Meaning, you and I have done nothing to deserve what we have gotten in Christ. There's nothing we could do to deserve salvation. There's nothing we could do to, to pay the penalty that sin caused. There's nothing we could do in and of ourselves to bridge the gap, that, 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 that brokenness between humanity and God because of sin. There was nothing we could do. But because of Christ's love for us, He poured out His favor and His kindness and His goodness on us. If we look at someone and feel like they don't deserve our generosity after knowing all of this, the gospel truly hasn't shaped our hearts, has it? A generous life is a gospel-shaped life. A Christian's generosity is more than altruism or philanthropy, right? 
it's deeper than trying to be a good person or having a good reputation in our community, which we want both of these things, but it's, it's deeper. It's more than that. A, a lot of people give because it makes them feel good about themselves, right? It's more about how giving makes them feel than it is about helping someone. And, and, and so if we're, if we're giving in order to get, if we're giving because of how it makes us feel, then, then that type of generosity is rooted in selfishness. Our generosity, a believer's generosity, is a result of Christ in us transforming our heart of greed and selfishness into a heart of generosity for the purpose of furthering God's work and mission and purpose in this world. Our generosity is so that people will see the love of Jesus and, and, and so we can share the gospel of Jesus with those that don't know him. That is the motive, that is the underlying motive for our generosity. In other words, I'm not generous because I need to be a good person in order for God to love me. I'm generous because I have been captivated by the grace of God and I have partnered with what God is doing on this earth. That is why I am generous. I am now a part of his kingdom agenda. So what does the gospel teach me about generosity? Well, number one, though I'm undeserving of God's love, through Christ I have generously received it. And then number two, the gospel shows me where to put my privilege down. The gospel shows me where to put my privilege. Downtown, baby. One commentary of this verse. Oh, oh let me let, let me reread that scripture. Paul says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. One commentary in reference to when Paul said that though Jesus was rich, it says this, this is a reference to the eternality and pre-existence of Christ. As the second person of the Trinity, Christ is as rich as God is rich. Christ is as rich as God is rich. How rich is God? Well, you can combine Jeff Bezos, uh, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett's net worth all together. You put it all together, and it wouldn't even come close to how rich God, it wouldn't even get you in a room with God. In fact, all of the riches that of this world, if you would combine every single person's bank account, you would all combine all their assets, all their investments, their retirement. If you, if you put all of the world's wealth together, it wouldn't be even be a pinch of God's riches. Okay, God created every star, every planet, and every galaxy. Everything that you see, God created. And if man created it, God gave him the strength, the power, the intellect, the brain power to create that thing. So ultimately, God created everything, right? He is the only reason that any of us can breathe. The reason we can bat our eyes is because God allows us to. The reason we can breathe is because God gives us breath. Hebrews tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He literally owns everything. And what's true of God is true of Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. But though Christ was rich, for the sake of humanity, he became poor. Becoming poor is referring to Christ's incarnation. 
As the Apostle John tells us in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Christ, as the firstborn of all creation, the second person of the Trinity, was privileged. Yet what did he do with his privilege? He laid it down for our sake so that through his poverty, you and I undeservedly could be rich. Christ put his privilege down for the sake of others. He laid his privilege down so that others could become rich through his riches. He gave his riches away. He gave his privilege away. Paul's famous poem in Philippians 2 puts it like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to for advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or literally a slave, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Rappers love to rap about going from rags to riches, but Christ literally went from riches to rags, and he did it on purpose because he loves you. Here's the thing, though. All of us acknowledge this if we're a Christian. All of us acknowledge that Christ became poor so that we could become rich for our sake. Yet, much of the time, it doesn't result in us embodying this posture. Every Christian knows this, but many times it makes no difference in our behavior. It, it doesn't get down into our heart. We become so callous. We become so used to the gospel that it doesn't affect our heart anymore. It doesn't cause change in any area of our lives. And that's, that, that's not what God wants for us. He wants the gospel to transform our hearts. He wants this message that Christ becoming poor for our sake, that, that, that we would know intimately his grace. That's what he wants for us and that it would, it would go so deep into our soul that it would transform our behavior. It would transform our heart. It would transform our actions. Paul tells us in verse 5 of Philippians 2 to have the same mindset as Christ had. Have this mind among yourselves. It's not just okay for us to know what Christ did. He wants us to have the same mindset. You see how the gospel works? Because Christ was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, we have no right to feel morally superior to anyone because we have been saved by his grace. We didn't save ourselves. We weren't good enough to save ourselves. Therefore, we can't be morally, we can't feel morally superior to anybody. So if we're earthly poor, we can't look at the earthly rich with disdain because Christ has made us rich in him. And if we're earthly rich, we can't look down on the poor because we are all undeserved of Christ's grace. Therefore, if I am allowing this gospel to truly penetrate my heart, the result will be generosity permeating through my life. It will be generosity permeating through my life. I will live my life with, with, with open hands and not closed fists. Why? Because I've been captured and captivated by the, by the grace and the love of God. 
There is nothing that can be done with gospel generosity that can be done better without it. Let me say that again. There is nothing that can be done with gospel generosity that can be done better without it. Our marriages become better when both spouses are generous towards each other, when we serve one another, when we put our uh, when we put our spouse's needs above our own needs. It's very hard. It's very difficult. But our marriages will be infinitely better if we live that out. Our churches become better when it is a generous community. Our relationships are more enriched when we sow generosity into each other's lives. When we when we try to outserve and outgive one another, our relationships are enriched. Our communities become healthier when Christians are walking in gospel generosity and helping them thrive. As we're entering into the Thanksgiving season, let's walk together in gospel generosity. If there is anyone in need around you, if you're able, be a blessing to them in, in a practical way. Don't just say, oh, brother, oh, sister, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pray. But if you can do something, pray for them and do something about it, right? Let's walk in this season with open hands, ready to give because of all that we have received from God, right? That's, what, that, that's how the gospel should, should inform our giving and our generosity. I want to encourage you, continue giving to God generously through the local church so that we can, in turn, continue to bless people who are in need. The local church and its members, there's a gospel partnership there that as you continue to sow generously, we can continue to give out generously. We can continue to provide for people's needs. Um, th this past Saturday, we were we were a part of a outreach to the community where we reached hundreds of kids and we were able to, to uh, the church, our church was able to provide uh, food along with other churches to kids, to every single kid that was there. These are the kinds of things that your generosity does. It, it makes the church's reach even further. I, I want to encourage you during this, as we're leading into this Thanksgiving season, Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about how you can enlarge your hearts this season. How you can be a more generous person. How you can give more. How you can use what God has blessed you with to bring Him glory and to reach other people. I want to encourage you to do that um, as we're entering into this, this Thanksgiving year. We have so much to be thankful for. And we have so much to be grateful for. And the number one thing we have to be grateful for is the grace of God that has been poured out on our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for being with us at TGP NYC. You can listen to other sermons on Spotify or wherever else podcasts are available. For further details about the Grace Place, please visit tgp.nyc.